You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 278, Arnold Raids Richmond. We last left General Benedict Arnold in episode 264, when he hatched a plot with the British to turn over West Point and betray his country. In exchange, he would receive a large sum of money and would receive a commission in the British regular army. The Americans, of course, discovered the plot when they captured British Major John Andre with documents outlining the plan. Arnold, however, managed to escape to British-occupied New York and begin his new life as a British officer. Secretary Germain in London confirmed General Clinton's promise to grant Arnold a commission as Brigadier General in the regular army. Arnold's new mission was to raise an army of loyalists and help bring an end to the war. Arnold's American Legion fell short of hopes. He managed to raise between 200 and 400 soldiers from loyalists and deserters from the Continental Army. Among his recruits was an American spy sent to look for an opportunity to kidnap Arnold and return him to the Continental Lines. The British commander, General Henry Clinton, had to find a mission to test his new general's capabilities as a British officer. By the end of 1780, Clinton was eyeing Virginia. Other than the Portsmouth raid that took place in 1779, Virginia had largely avoided any real battles during the war. It served as a source of food and supplies for the Continental Army, By 1780, it was developing into a main supply base for General Greene's Southern Army in the Carolinas. General Clinton believed that he could at least disrupt operations in Virginia. This would impact supplies for the enemy's Southern Army. He also wanted to establish a port on the Chesapeake at Portsmouth, which would serve as a naval port for British ships supporting the Southern colonies. In late 1780, Clinton deployed 2,500 soldiers under General Alexander Leslie to establish a British presence at Portsmouth. Leslie had begun to build defenses there when he received instructions from General Cornwallis to move even further south. After the British lost their loyalists at Kings Mountain, Cornwallis needed reinforcements if he wanted to do much of anything in the Carolinas. So Leslie's forces left Portsmouth only a few weeks after their arrival, headed for Charleston by ship. Clinton then tasked General Arnold with securing the Chesapeake for the British. Arnold's command consisted of between 1,500 and 1,800 soldiers, almost entirely American loyalists. Aside from his own small legion, Clinton gave Arnold the Queen's American Rangers under the command of Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe. Other loyalist regiments also joined him, most of which came from the Mid-Atlantic region. Most of them had been with the Army for years and were experienced combat veterans. But the only regular regiment assigned to Arnold 
was the 80th Regiment of Foot, a Scottish regiment under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Dundas. Also joining the expedition were about a hundred Hessian Jaegers under the command of Captain Johann Ewald and a few pieces of field artillery. General Clinton had no expectations that Arnold was going to take all of Virginia. In fact, given Arnold's reputation for reckless aggression in battle, Clinton explicitly warned Arnold against going too far too fast. His mission was to continue the setup of a British-controlled port at Portsmouth and to encourage Loyalist enlistments only in the neighboring counties where the British could assert control. He also told Arnold to consult with Colonels Simcoe and Dundas before taking any major actions. Clinton even issued secret instructions to Simcoe and Dundas to take command of the operation if Arnold got out of control. A fleet carrying Arnold's army departed Sandy Hook, New Jersey on December 20, 1780. By December 30th, parts of the fleet sighted Hampton Roads, Virginia, in the Chesapeake. A storm, though, had scattered the fleet en route, and Arnold was missing about one-third of his army. He did not want to wait very long, since the enemy would see his fleet, giving them time to put together a defense. Arnold first planned to land near Jamestown, but received reports that a large militia group was preparing to challenge him there. Instead, he kept his forces aboard ship. The fleet captured about 20 smaller boats at the mouth of the James River, taking them as prizes. Rather than land immediately, Arnold used those smaller boats to move his forces up the James River toward Richmond. During one attempt to seize a ship on January 2nd, 1781, Arnold had his first exchange of fire with American land forces there. A local battery along the shore of the river fired on his ship. Now, Clinton had given Arnold orders not to engage in indiscriminate destruction since they still hoped to recruit Virginians to the Loyalist cause. So, in response to the fire from the shore, Arnold simply sent a note under a flag of truce that said in part, I have to acquaint you that, however disagreeable it may be to me, unless you immediately desist firing and suffer the prize to be taken away with all her materials, I shall be under the necessity of landing and burning the village, which I hope to avoid. After receiving the note, the militia ceased fire, and Arnold was able to capture the prize ship without any further interference. The following day, Arnold's fleet proceeded up the James River to Hood's Point, about 30 miles below Richmond. There, the Patriot militia had established another artillery battery to contest the British advance. Once again, Arnold sent another note similar to the one he had sent before. When he received no response, Arnold landed Colonel Simcoe with about 130 of the Queen's Rangers, as well as the light infantry and grenadier companies of his regulars. By the time Simcoe reached the artillery, the militia had fled. Simcoe's men spiked the guns, rendering them useless, and managed to capture a few militia stragglers. They also seized a howitzer, which they carried back to the ship as a prize. They did not pillage the countryside, nor take any punitive actions against civilian property. Following Simcoe's return, the fleet continued upriver. It arrived at Westover the following day. Westover Plantation was a large and prosperous plantation owned by the Bird family. The Birds were politically divided, some of them fighting with the Patriots, others with the Loyalists. The plantation owner, a widow named Mary Bird, received Arnold and his men warmly, 
Mary was the cousin of Arnold's wife, Peggy Shippen Arnold. She provided breakfast for Arnold and his officers and engaged in pleasant conversation. Arnold had hoped that his presence would encourage Virginia loyalists to turn out and for some who supported the Patriots to maybe reconsider their positions and join Arnold in restoring the king's peace. However, Clinton had ordered Arnold not to make any sort of bold proclamations this far inland from the coast. Clinton did not want to make promises that turned out loyalists, then leave those loyalists and their families hanging in areas where the British could not be assured of retaining control. So Arnold limited his efforts with the locals to get intelligence on the region and possible defenses that he might face. Many local Tories were willing to volunteer their services, and things looked promising that Virginia might be willing to move into the British camp. Locals told Arnold that the 25 miles between his camp at Westover and Richmond were virtually undefended. He could just continue to move upriver and take the capital. These intelligence reports proved correct. The Americans had been caught nearly defenseless. Governor Thomas Jefferson had ordered the state capital move from Williamsburg to Richmond back in April of 1780. Williamsburg was too close to the coast and an easy target for British raiders. But even Richmond's inland location did not provide much of a deterrent. Most of the Virginia line had been captured at Charleston earlier in 1780, and much of its militia had been dispersed at Camden a few months later. Since then, the Continentals were desperately trying to raise more soldiers in Virginia to send down to Nathaniel Green in North Carolina. In fact, Green's second-in-command, General von Steuben, was still in Virginia at the time of Arnold's landing, trying to raise troops and supplies for the Southern Army. The result of all that was that any men of fighting age still in Virginia were probably mostly either loyalists or among those who were unwilling or unable to fight. When Jefferson received word of the British fleet arriving, he attempted to activate the militia and had hoped to oppose a British landing near Jamestown, but when Arnold simply ignored that defense and sailed upriver, Jefferson's government was caught with almost no defenses at all. The governor dashed off a few more notes to call out the militia across the state, but he was primarily focused on removing state papers and supplies out of Richmond to Westham, about six miles west of the capital. He hoped that if the British burned and looted Richmond, that the critical government papers and supplies would be safe. Now, given the reports of minimal Patriot defenses, Arnold was tempted to continue on to Richmond. However, he was still missing one-third of his army, and he was cognizant of Clinton's orders about not being too rash or aggressive. So Arnold held a council of war with Colonels Simcoe and Dundas. The three men decided that they could send a force on a one-day march to Richmond with pretty minimal risk to the overall mission. They agreed that Arnold and Simcoe would lead a raiding party of about 800 men to Richmond while leaving their base of operations at Westover under the command of Colonel Dundas. The British made no attempt to hide their intentions through a night march or some sort of lightning raid. The column left Westover around 2 in the afternoon on January 4th. It marched about half the distance that day, camping at Fort Mile Creek, about 12 miles from Richmond. The following morning, the column continued its march, approaching the city limits by about 1 p.m. on the 5th. A few local militia shadowed the column, but ran off when Colonel Simcoe dispatched riders to engage with them. 
so the British managed to complete their two-day march with no one firing a shot against them. When they arrived, the city was in chaos. The legislature had skipped town as soon as word arrived of the approaching British. Private citizens were struggling to remove their property from town along jammed country roads. Governor Jefferson was still overseeing the removal of state property from Richmond to Westham that morning, finally riding away just hours before the British entered the capital. The city defenses consisted of several hundred local militia setting up on Richmond Hill, which was the best high ground in town. Arnold once again dispatched Colonel Simcoe, along with Captain Ewald and his Hessian Jaegers, to contest the hill, but as the British moved up Richmond Hill, the Patriot militia fled without firing a shot. Another small group of militia gathered on Shoko Hill. Again, they fled as soon as the enemy approached. Simcoe managed to catch six stragglers who fled their defenses a little too slowly. Having captured Richmond with almost no resistance, the British spent the afternoon of the 5th destroying government buildings and property. After Arnold learned that Americans had moved much of the property to Westham, he dispatched Simcoe with about half his force to ride to Westham and burn all the government buildings and property that were located there. Westham also contained an iron foundry, workshops, and a munitions magazine, all of which were put to the torch. Back in Richmond, Arnold set up headquarters at Galt's Tavern. He oversaw the destruction of government buildings and property, but made every effort to prevent the destruction of private property or any looting by his soldiers. Despite the efforts, there was some collateral damage of private property, especially when some of the building fires got out of control and wiped out several city blocks. Arnold, though, mostly sought to protect private property. He believed that Richmond, much like Philadelphia, saw most of its private property in the hands of loyalists. He wanted to establish good relations with these city leaders in hopes of turning the state back into a British-ruled colony. Even so, Arnold could not resist the opportunity to make a buck. He did issue a proclamation to local inhabitants, informing them that properties such as tobacco, rum, wine, sugar, molasses, sailcloth, and coffee were subject to seizure and confiscation as military prizes. But, being the nice guy that he was, Arnold offered to buy any of these items from locals at 50 cents on the dollar. Now, the merchants took the offer to Governor Jefferson for a response. Jefferson, of course, indignantly refused to bargain or correspond with the traitor Arnold in any way. So when Arnold got no response, he seized or destroyed a great deal of the supplies in Richmond and the surrounding area. The British continued their work into the night and the following morning. And by the afternoon of January 6th, Arnold was ready to leave Richmond. Simcoe wanted to remain another night, but Arnold was concerned that Virginia might be able to call in enough militia to create a significant resistance if given enough time. Arnold had no desire to occupy Richmond permanently and did not want to look like he was being chased out of town by the militia. So that afternoon, Arnold reassembled his column and marched back to Four Mile Creek. The following day, they returned to Westover. Again, the march back faced no opposition. Some of Simcoe's men were accused of looting homes on the return march, but mostly followed the orders to leave private property alone. Arnold even left 20 guineas, about $16,000 in today's money, to care for the poor of the city. 
Governor Jefferson later insisted the money be returned. Following the British departure from Richmond, the city was in chaos. There were reports of local Patriot militia and other residents looting the city before the Americans could restore order. The British reported losing nine men in the raid. It's not clear if the missing men deserted or were captured while straggling, but there were no reported losses from actual fighting. After the return to Westover, Arnold received a report that several hundred militia were assembling at Charles City Courthouse, about nine miles from the British camp. Simcoe led about 40 mounted rangers to disperse the militia. In brief fighting there, one ranger was killed and three wounded. The other significant action taken was against Berkeley Plantation near Westover. Berkeley was the home of Benjamin Harrison, a member of the Continental Congress and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Arnold, of course, had never liked most members of Congress, even before he switched sides, and allowed a little retribution in this case. The British looted the plantation, seizing or killing all the livestock. Although they didn't burn the home, they did pillage it, removing all the furniture and paintings to the front lawn where they held a large bonfire. They also absconded with 40 slaves, although it's not clear if the slaves left voluntarily. Arnold also received word that the Americans had reoccupied Hood's Point, which could prove a danger to British river traffic. He deployed some troops under Loyalist Colonel Beverly Robinson to march overland and secure the point again. These men walked into an ambush set by Colonel George Rogers Clark. It turns out that Clark happened to be in Richmond to lobby for more support for his Western campaign and was able to engage with the British raiders in this ambush. The attack was a quick hit and run, but led to the greatest number of British casualties during the raid. The Loyalists lost three killed and 17 wounded. Over the next couple of days, the British began the process of moving 80 miles back downriver in small boats. Arnold had never planned his move up the James River to be anything more than a short raid. He returned to Portsmouth per his original orders, which he fortified and prepared for use as his army's winter quarters. On January 19th, part of Arnold's raiding party reached Portsmouth, with the remainder arriving the following day. Arnold's raid had much of its intended effect. The fact that Arnold had been largely unopposed led to criticisms of Jefferson's government and its inability to defend the state. Many Americans grudgingly credited Arnold with moving quickly before the militia could assemble and mount any real defense, but it's not really clear that even if they had more time, the militia would have been able to mount any credible threat to Arnold's forces. By this time, the missing third of Arnold's army had made it to Portsmouth, so absent a large effort by Continental forces, they were probably there to stay. Much of the local Patriot militia surrendered to the British and accepted parole. Many of the men wanted this since they could avoid turning out for further militia duty or duty in the Continental Army, if they were on parole. It was a great excuse to stay home. The problem got so bad that Governor Jefferson declared that militia paroles were void and that they would have to continue to turn out for expected duty. Despite the surrendering militia, the Loyalists did not turn up in great numbers to join Arnold. The general blamed this on his predecessor, General Alexander Leslie, who had encouraged Loyalists to come out of hiding when he arrived the previous year. Then, when Leslie was called away to the Carolinas, 
the Virginia Loyalists had to face retribution from their patriot neighbors. So this time, no one was going to stick their neck out again until they were convinced that the British were there to stay. Arnold's raid helped secure his reputation with the British leadership. He had proven himself to be an effective combat officer. He had done more with fewer men than other British raids in the area had ever been able to accomplish. Arnold spent the next few months building his defenses at Portsmouth and sending patrols inland to break up any reported militia gatherings. On February 13th, Arnold learned of the approach of three French men-of-war. The ship stayed less than a week and then sailed off without engaging, but their mere presence inspired 2,500 militia to organize and advance on Portsmouth. As I said, the French ships sailed away, and when they did, the militia also returned home without firing a shot. But the event demonstrated to Arnold that he would face opposition if the opportunity arose. While Virginia was not organized enough to defend itself, it also was not ready to return to British rule. Next week, General Nathaniel Green moves into Virginia, not to attack Arnold, but to escape from the British under Cornwallis in the race to the Dan. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, Michael Gaylord, and John Celentano. And welcome to Michael Mulhern, who just upgraded to the Alexander Hamilton Club. I also extend my thanks to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam, TJ Walker, and new to the circle, Joe Kelsey. Joe, thanks for your kind words and for your correction on the pronunciation of Mackinac. Thanks also to Shane Schultz and Justin Udicatus, who joined at the Privy Council level as well as Greg Pusak and Ron Thorson, who both upgraded to Privy Council. I'd also like to thank Robert Parks, Paul Brown, John Vanzana, Zachary Blocker, and Matthew Thews for generous one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I really want to thank everyone who stepped up after I announced last week that I was leaving my day job and devoting myself to the podcast. I appreciate everyone who stepped up both with financial support and with the many words of support and encouragement. It really does mean more than I can express, 
how much people value this podcast and want to see it continue to grow. For anyone interested, I just did an interview with Ronald Kern of the Patriot Power podcast talking about the American Revolution and also this podcast. Ron has his own podcast about the American Revolution, but our interview is on his new YouTube channel. So if you want to watch it, just search for Patriot Power Podcast on YouTube. This week, we saw Benedict Arnold in his first real command following his decision to betray his country and join the British Army. He seemed to fight effectively as a British officer. He was regularly engaged with the enemy, despite knowing that if he was captured, it would mean that he would be hanged. His command in Virginia would be one of only two major commands that he would have before the war came to an end. Arnold would remain in Virginia for another six months. He would be superseded in command for part of that time, and then he would return to New York before the Yorktown campaign really got going. His other command in America was a raid against New London, Connecticut, that I will cover in a future episode. Arnold was in New York City when the British surrendered at Yorktown, and he got approval to travel to London shortly after Cornwallis's surrender there. He really wanted to return back to America after spending a short time in London, but he never got the opportunity before the war ended. I've read a whole bunch of books about Benedict Arnold, and I really haven't found one that covers his British service. The books tend to focus on his betrayal at West Point, and then most skip ahead and mention his death in England many years later. The Richmond Raid was also a big event for another leader, Governor Thomas Jefferson, who took criticism for the state's weak defense. That, along with the larger invasion of the state shortly before the state's elections, the legislature ended up electing Thomas Nelson to take over the role of governor. For the next few years, Jefferson retired to his home. He spent his time writing the notes on the state of Virginia, and it looked to some like his political career might be over. The new governor, Thomas Nelson, had a lot more military experience. And for Virginia, this was important, because although Arnold left Virginia, the British did not. The year 1781 would see considerable fighting within the state, as both armies converged there for the final major campaign of the war. My book recommendation this week is a relatively short one, but really on point. It is The Invasion of Virginia, 1781, by Michael Chechery. It's a pretty short book at under 200 pages, and it covers not only Arnold's raid, but the subsequent fighting in the state under General Cornwallis that eventually results in the Siege of Yorktown. I think it provides pretty good coverage of the events in 1781 that lead up to the Battle of Yorktown. The author, Michael Chechery, is a high school history teacher in Virginia. He's written several books on the American Revolution, most of which focus on men or events in Virginia. In a previous episode, I recommended his book about General Hugh Mercer. So, if you want to read more about Arnold's invasion and subsequent events in Virginia during 1781, get a copy of The Invasion of 1781 by Michael Chetri. My online recommendation is an older and even shorter book called Arnold's Invasion of Virginia, 1781 by Francis Lassiter. Although it is available in book form on archive.org, this was originally written for a magazine. The story is only 34 pages long, which really isn't much of a book, but it does focus directly on the topic I discussed today. In fact, my episode tends to focus more on the British perspective of the invasion, 
and Lassiter's book focuses more on the American perspective. This is an older publication. It was first published in 1901, I believe, so it's in the public domain and available, as I said, on archive.org. So if you want to get more details about today's episode, take a look at Arnold's Invasion of Virginia, 1781, by Francis Lassiter. As always, there are links on my website and blog. And be sure to check out my blog for much more sources and details about today's episode. You can always do that by going to blog.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week asks, in the American Revolution, in implementing their Southern strategy, why didn't London's forces land in Virginia and work their way south, rather than land in Georgia and work their way north? Uh, Usually the questions I answer have nothing to do with the subject of the day, but I guess this is a particularly appropriate question today since we have been talking about the British invasion of Virginia in 1781, but that of course happened nearly two years after the Southern strategy began. British military leaders had grown frustrated with their inability to recapture the middle colonies after retaking New York City in 1776. By 1779, after France and Spain had entered the war, Britain was not so much looking to defeat the colonies as much as it was to cut its losses in North America. Georgia was one of the most lightly populated states at that time and right next to Loyalist Florida. It seemed to be a pretty easy target for the British. The relatively small invasion force there proved that to be correct. Next came South Carolina. Recall that early in the war, back in early 1776, British generals Clinton and Cornwallis attempted to capture Charleston before the invasion of New York, and they failed miserably. So by 1780, General Clinton was eager to wash away that failure by capturing the largest city in the southern colonies, Charleston. He did so, then leaving Cornwallis to build on that. Virginia and North Carolina were less attractive as easy targets for the British. They were more heavily populated, There was no single large city on the coast to capture, and the Loyalist populations in those states were not believed to be as great. So Britain wanted to secure the southernmost colonies as the easiest prizes first. While General Cornwallis attempted to expand on those victories by moving into North Carolina and then Virginia, he found that he did not have a sufficiently large army to occupy those areas and eventually, of course, had to surrender his army. Had he simply secured Georgia and South Carolina, Britain might have actually retained those parts of the empire when the war ended. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me, either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.